If you got a Bible, we're jumping back into Acts 17 tonight. Uh, we're jumping back into our Acts study in a big way, picking up in the middle of Acts 17. This is a different, ty- different style of story, different style of narrative than we've been studying in Acts. Um, it's uh, one of my favorite passages, though. It's one of my favorite accounts in all the scriptures. Ever since I was a kid, this story has always fascinated me um, as I grew up it, uh, for different reasons. Uh, I, I realized there's so many different things at play in this chapter and it became more intriguing, more interesting. Um, Maybe you've heard this story preached and taught before. If not, I I think it's one that's very overlooked. Um, It's really one of the most unique accounts in the Bible in that it features one of the most, uh, one of our heroes completely out of their comfort zone uh, in a completely foreign setting. This is one of the few chapters in Acts where we, we really get the sense of what it was like for the disciples on the mission field, completely out of their comfort zone in, in, in a territory completely different than they've ever been in their lives and ever would be, really. Um, most of the episodes in the Bible take place within the context of Judaism, within the context of Christianity. Everything's very controlled. Uh, the audience is at least aware of or adjacent of the faith, and we don't, hear, we don't see them really struggling up the, uh, uh, the uphill battle that is a world that is just completely raw and, and unaware of, of God and of the gospel. This is a chapter where we get to see what it was like for them sharing the gospel with a group of people that were completely unchurched, completely raw without any knowledge of what we all know just as a part of our culture. Uh, Growing up in this country, we kind of know these things by proxy, but this was a group of people that had never heard of the very basic things of the faith, um, which is, I think, important for us to study for that reason. Um, uh, Even in the Old Testament episodes, when the Jews were out of their context in Egypt or Babylon, there was still an awareness of the Jewish faith. There was still an awareness of the Jewish God. Many people even believed in the Jewish God, even though they didn't worship him. But... uh, As we've talked about, as the church moved out of its comfort zone from Acts 16 forward, as they get into Europe, as they get into Greece and then Rome, um, they are in completely foreign soil, completely foreign territory. As they get into Europe, they are outside of Jewish communities like they had been in. And uh, in Acts 17, Paul is going to visit the epicenter of the pagan world, um, which is, of course, the city of Athens, Greece. You've heard of Athens before. Athens is a, real, is a city that to this day bears that same name. Um, but in the ancient world, it was the epicenter of philosophy and the epicenter of the pagan religions. Uh, not, not at all versed in Judaism or the Jewish faith, uh, by all means, the Christian faith. And this was their first exposure to it. So this is why the chapter is so cool, I think. Uh, and, and this is why I think the chapter is such a testimony to the power of the gospel. One of the greatest testimonies to the power of the gospel because it features Paul, literally a sheep among wolves, making a case for Christianity where it should have never been taken serious. And yet many people come to faith because of this encounter and a very unconventional approach that Paul takes that he hasn't taken before, but proves to be effective. I think we can learn a lot from his vulnerability. Paul, is, Paul even admits he's very uncomfortable when he walks into this place. He is very much out of his, uh, out of his you, know, uh, uh, you know, kind of safe zone. He is not where he is used to being in terms of context and environment. He's very vulnerable, but the grace he displays and the tact he utilizes are very important that we as Christians should pay attention to. Um, I also think this chapter makes a powerful case for the authenticity of scriptures, uh, of the scriptures. Now, I know everybody here tonight, I'm sure, and I hope you do and you should, 
everybody here, I'm sure, believes the Bible is both inspired and historical. Now, inspired means that God breathed the words through the writers, through the hearts and minds of the writers, onto the pages that we hold. We believe the Bible is inspired. God breathed the words through the minds and hearts of the writers onto the pages that we hold. But the Bible is also historical. Uh, in that the narratives don't simply contain moral lessons. That they, you know, God didn't just inspire these stories that have a meaning behind them, but these are actual accurate accounts of things that took place in history unless they're referred to as a parable or a, a, an allegory, which that's just a few in terms of what Jesus told. But the Bible is full of history, history that involved God working in and around the settings that the narratives talk about. It's important that we affirm that as students of the Bible. Sometimes we make a big deal about inspiration, but we don't so much as verify or explore the historicity of the text, which is, I think is as important. Um, Acts 17 does not contain a story like some chapters with miracles or spectacle. It is a story or it's an episode that on paper should have never worked out. Um, it's an episode that nobody would have made up because on paper, it, there, there's no way it should have turned out positive or effective. Um, for that reason, I think this chapter helps to affirm the Bible as inspired and historical because it features a story that would have been impossible to manufacture and most likely unimaginable as a concept. I, I do think, however, in hindsight, some of the themes and backdrops of this chapter and story, they kind of connect with and rhyme with some of the other major events in the Bible, which makes it even more noteworthy. Um, this chapter is yet another example uh, in the story of God where God takes his people and his message to the world. Now, just a little bit of comparison to religions of the world versus Christianity. Every major religion features a God who stands at the top of a mountain and says, I hope you can make it up here. Good luck trying. Every religion in the ancient world, every religion in the world today, it's all about us trying to get our way to God, finding our way to God, fighting, scrapping, clawing our way to God, obeying our way to God. That's religion. But Christianity is God making his way to us, right? It's God coming down the mountain and showing his people and showing the world that he loves them and has made a way for them. And the Bible features God taking his people to the world, not just the world in generic terms, but taking taking his people to the epicenters and headquarters of power in the world. Now, you know, you know the story of Moses. God took him to Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought he was God. He thought he was the ruler of the world. But Moses said, I got to introduce you to the one true God, the great I am. He, he, he remember when Solomon became king of all the earth, God brought all the world to him so that they might get a glimpse of the, the king of Israel and more importantly, the God behind the king of Israel. And then later, of course, God took Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar and Darius from Babylon and Persia so that those world leaders might know that there is a God who is greater than them. Um, but again, this is, I think, even bigger and more important than those episodes. In those days, Israel and the Jewish God were on people's radars at least, but nobody in Greece, nobody in Greece had the Middle East on its mind. More, even less so, the God of the Middle East, the God of the Jewish people. Nobody had him on their mind. Uh, and so it makes this episode more high stakes, more daring, I think. Uh, this episode, 
takes place on a mountain, which is something that we read a lot in the Bible. Um, the ancient world, mountains were always significant. People thought God dwelled or the gods dwelled on the mountains. Um, the ancients naturally associated God or the gods with mountaintops, and we can figure that out pretty easily. Uh, some of the most important narratives in the Bible feature mountains. Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, in the first of those, God was exalted and highlighted as the one true God again against other gods. And then of course, when Jesus was glorified on the mountain of transfiguration, God was verifying that he was the Messiah. He was the savior. But this mountain experience is a little different. Um, Acts 17 features a mountain called Areopagus, Areopagus or the Areopagus. And that's just a fancy Greek word of two words mashed together. Uh, that word means the hill of Ares. The hill of Ares. Now, Ares is the Greek, or was, and he's a myth, but Ares was the Greek god of war. So that's pretty, you think, well, that's kind of strange. There was a god, the Greeks had gods for everything, and, and Ares was the god of war. So he was the one behind all the bloodshed, all the turmoil, all the chaos, all the, the war that took place and always would take place. Now, the Greeks and the Romans pretty much agreed upon the same pantheon of gods. The Romans and the Greeks worshiped the same gods, but the Romans spoke Latin and the Greeks spoke Greek, obviously. Um, so they referred to their gods with different names. So the Romans referred to Ares as Mars. So that's why you've heard this chapter referred to as Mars Hill, because Areopagus in Latin is Mars Hill instead of Ares Hill. So that's where that kind of connection comes from. The Romans referred to this as Mars Hill. Um, in the Greek legend, though, in the Greek legend, Ares was tried. He was brought before all the other gods. And again, this isn't true, but this is the legend that they told why they named this Ares Hill or Mars Hill. In the Greek legend, Ares was tried on this hill by the other gods for his war crimes. So in the Greek legend, all the other gods got fed up with Ares because of all the war he was causing. And they had basically had him uh, on trial at this hill. This was the legend. Uh, but he was acquitted because he was simply doing what the other gods did. He was just doing his job. He's the god of war. Well, of course you cause war, bloodshed and cause war. That's what your job is. So they acquitted him, but they called this hill Mars Hill or Ares Hill to remember that legend that they told. Now this hill took on importance in the Greek way of life as much as Athens developed around it. It became a place of debate for the philosophers and intellects of the world, a place where everyone would gather and give their sides. Everybody would gather and debate their different opinions on this hill. And pretty much everybody was always heard fairly in the spirit of that trial of Ares. But the name of the place I think is pretty powerful. Uh, I wanna unpack for just a little bit. Many of the, the philosophers that gathered here um, displayed a frustration displayed a, a, a grievousness toward religion. Now, even though they were adhering to the religion, they worshiped and they sacrificed on this hill, many of the philosophers of ancient Greece had grown disenchanted and frustrated with their religion because they knew it wasn't helping them. It was static. It was burdensome. It didn't actually give them any relief from their greatest problems. But they could not quit it because they felt accountable to it 
into the gods. There were so many philosophical thought groups that proposed all sorts of ideas and ways of life that would satisfy the longing of every heart for purpose and for peace. They all agreed the God did not care about people. The gods were a necessary evil. The gods only got involved in the day-to-day world when they wanted to antagonize people. So they tried their best to figure out a way to carve some path to live quiet and peaceful lives, hoping to skirt the attention of the gods. But the only problem was they still needed to pay homage to the gods because any hope of there being hope after this life lied in their hands. So you understand why the the Greek people were very frustrated, but still very slavish to their religion. And I think that's where the meaning of Mars Hill becomes even more significant. This hillside that was named after the god of war, Mars Hill, a place that they worshipped and debated their religion. Mars Hill, on Mars Hill, the battle humanity faced was on full display. Every heart wanted to break free from the dead in religion, but they felt slavishly bound to it. They knew it wasn't helping them. They knew it wasn't working, but they did not know what else to do. So they stayed there, sacrificing to these idols day after day, debating with each other day after day, wanting to get away from it, but knowing they did not have a choice, or at least they didn't think they did. So this is where the Apostle Paul enters the scene and why this story it, it, it may be similar to other episodes of the Bible, but really it's very unique because the, this one features Paul coming to the mountain, clouded in deception and frustration, bringing the knowledge of the one true God with him. Athens is a sense, a picture of the world completely in the dark to God, completely confused and constrained by this world and its forces. And Acts 17 shows us how the church shined a light into that darkness and eventually ground that mountain to a pulp. That's what is most remarkable about this chapter. Christianity seems like such a far and far-fetched idea. And all these years later, the prevailing thought of those days is more foreign than Christianity ever was. So I want to get into Acts 17. I want to discover how all this went down. I want to unpack what was going on on that mountain and what was going on at Mars Hill. And I want to learn, I think we can learn a lot about how we can share Jesus with the lost world from how Paul did with his world. So jump down to verse 16, verse 16 through 21. We'll get a glimpse of kind of what's going on here. So while Paul waited for them, his rest of his team, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And by given over, I mean there were idols everywhere, all over this hillside. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentiles, with the Gentile worshipers in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of some foreign God or foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus or to Mars Hill saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else, but either to tell or hear some new thing debating some new idea because they were desperate to find something greater than they felt 
like they, could, like they were settling with there. A couple things to note here. When Paul gets to Athens, he's a devout Jewish man, so I bet it's no surprise that he was greatly sensitive to the idols in idol worship. What is the, of course, the first and second commandment? Have no other gods before thee. Do not make graven images. So it's no surprise that a Jewish man was very disturbed by idols and by idol worship. The first thing he does when he gets there is find a place of respite. He finds the very small Jewish community that would have existed there. He goes to the Jewish synagogue. He shares Jesus with the Jews, but he just can't get the Gentiles off his mind. It says that he goes to the marketplace and he spends day after day. One of the few times we see that Paul didn't just go to a place for one day or two. The verse 16 or 17 tells us he spent days in the marketplace having conversations with these very strange people to his way of life, these philosophers who at first thought he was just a babbler, but then began to realize that he was preaching to them a man named Jesus in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, again, he can't stay away from the Gentiles. He goes day after day to the Agora at the base of the hill. Eventually, he was invited to Mars Hill for some sort of debate, some sort of trial, because they heard him preach Jesus again and again. And they thought, well, we need to hear you on the mountaintop like we hear all the other people. Now, I want to talk about something that we could easily slip past, but I think it's more important than maybe anything that we've talked about so far um, in, 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 in Acts. And, and that's saying a lot, but I think it's very important when it comes to what we have been called to do. What does it say that Paul was preaching to the city in verse 18? He preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, why is that important? I want us to understand that Paul took a very specific tact here and approach here because this might be the most underappreciated and overlooked moment of his ministry. Back in verse 16, it says he was very troubled. He was provoked. And that doesn't mean angry. It just means he was disturbed, deeply troubled by the idol worship. Paul, deeply troubled with the idols he sees. So what would have been the easiest sermon for Paul to preach? A message against idols. Don't you think? He was a Jewish man. He could have preached this message with his eyes closed, right? He could have quoted hundreds of verses from the Old Testament that condemned idols and idol worship, and he would have been right in doing so. But that's not what he does. Now, that's a big deal, isn't it? Because what's the easiest sermon he could have preached? You're worshiping idols? That's wrong. The Bible says that's wrong. Don't you understand? Of course, they wouldn't have understood because they didn't know the Bible said that, which is the whole point. Now, this goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. Paul was determined to be a difference maker, not a point maker. Nothing wrong with making points, but what's better than making points? Making differences. Now, here's the big deal. Had he preached an anti-idol message to a society completely immersed in idol worship with zero context for his message, he would have been 100% right, but a 100% ineffective. Do you get that? He could have preached a message against idols and he would have been right and justified in his preaching, but he would have made zero difference. 
Now, I think, this mess- I think the message for us, I think there's a big message here. And I think we can learn from something, learn a lot here. Sometimes we have to be able to discern the right message for the right time. Now, don't get me wrong. Truth is always true, but tact is always a necessity if truth is going to impact the target audience. Do you follow me there? I'm not saying that idols are right. They're not. The Bible says they're not, but there's a reason behind that that's more important. But the point of it is he could have said, you're wrong, you're condemned, there's no hope for you. Get rid of the idols. But, there, but that would not have been the approach that could have made and would have made a difference. And that's why as important as preaching truth is the tact and the approach we go about in preaching it. And this might confirm why a lot of us, and I'm not pointing the finger, I'm talking about me. This might help us understand why we don't always make a difference with people that we're trying to get to. It's not that the truth isn't true, but it's the tact is a necessity if the truth we preach is going to impact the target that we make. So Paul shows restraint in his response. Restraint. Because Paul was more sensitive to the needs of their hearts than he was offended by the sin of their hands. And this is where we've got to really be self-aware when we go into situations that we're not comfortable with. We can get easily offended by sin. And listen, we should be offended by sin. Sin is against God and sometimes it's against us too, right? In some circumstances, it's very much against us. Being offended by sin is not wrong, right? But the problem is we must be more sensitive to the needs of the hearts than we are offended by the sin of the hand. Because if we go straight to, I'm offended, so I need to correct them, we may never help them. This is what will make the difference in us being effective evangelists versus us being wrecking balls. Listen, I've been in some circles and I've come out of some circles and I've been around the types of people that take pride in firing off at people just because they're right and other people are wrong and all they care about is pointing out the others are wrong and being right and it's their own pride that they do this with and they don't care about the hearts of the people that are, in, that are doing the wrong thing. They just care about their own pride. And they condemn people very flippantly and very swiftly. So we need to never make that same mistake. And come on, religion's first and natural response to sin and sinners is to condemn, not care. Religions first, and we got to know about this. We got to know this about ourselves because this is what happens when we get, you know, religious. And nothing wrong with being religious. It just means we need to be aware of what happens. Religions first and natural response to sin and sinners is to condemn them, not care for them. We got to be careful with this. Condemning is easy and makes us feel accomplished in our flesh. It's easy to confuse that with righteous indignation. Believe me. A lot of times people say, well, I'm just, I'm just, you know, being zealous for what's right. I'm not saying you aren't, but what good are you accomplishing? That's the big question. That's the more important question. But the question you have to ask yourself is how can I make an impact on the heart of these people? How can I show them that I care and that more importantly, that God cares? I'm not saying you turn a blind eye to the problem. I mean, we need to get beneath what's really going on and actually address the problem. 
Otherwise, you just turn somebody away and you never make any difference and you never do any good and it condemns them and it does not show them that God cares for them. So rather than taking the easy way out, Paul begins making the effective way in and he begins preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And at first they think, what in the world are you talking about? Who's Jesus? What's the resurrection? That doesn't make any sense. But over time, it begins to get their attention. It takes days to get their attention. It may have took weeks to get their attention. But what was Paul's goal? Not just to condemn them, but to care for them. You say, well, that's going to require a commitment. Exactly. That's going to require conversations. That's going to require investment. Exactly. Evangelism that's effective requires a commitment. If our idea of evangelism is walking into somewhere with a microphone and today's version of it is putting something online and people liking it that you already agree with you and then people getting mad at you that don't agree with you, that's what we do, right? Evangelism is not that. Evangelism requires commitment. It requires a relational investment. That's what Paul is exhibiting for us in this chapter. Let me just say that it it seems to me the church is less interested in this kind of evangelism. We love being loud and making points and and, and just scattershot condemning people. Well, they're wrong. We're right. Of course they should get it. But, you know, we don't make a difference and we don't make an impact. And ultimately the, the result is no good is done. Now, Of course, it's God that works the miracle of conversion, but where true impact and change is made is going to be through servants that are willing to make the hard commitment that's required, the relational investment that is necessary. As displayed through Jesus, as displayed here through Paul, unbelievers, and this is, I know this might sound, you know, crass, funny, but unbelievers are not subjects. They're not lab rats. We're not trying to inject them with the serum. They're people people that God loves, people that sin has maybe taken a very long way in the wrong direction, people that God has called us to love and commit to and invest in. And that might not see a change overnight and it might not see a change in a week or two time. It takes a serious commitment, a commitment that not a lot of people are willing to make. Paul was well aware and most most concerned about the pervasive hold that adultery had on the hearts of these people, which is why he restrained from condemning them and committed to forging relationships with them and making a difference with them. This idol worship was baked into their society. It was worse than that. It was baked into their fallen world. In Romans 1, Paul talks about how even though nature points people to there being one God, the fallen world perverts that and leads us into idol worship. It leads us into clinging to the wrong things. Basically saying that on our own, we're not gonna get to God, which is why we need God, why God sent Jesus to get to us and why God has called us to take the gospel to people. Listen, that's why Paul was so determined to get these people to Jesus. He was provoked by their idol worship, but rather than condemning them, he invested in them and preached Jesus to them. And over time, he got their attention. And this is very important. Paul was determined to preach for them, not against them. 
not saying he was preaching what they wanted. My point is he was preaching something that was for them, not against them. He could have preached against idols, but you know what he chose to preach? What would actually make a difference? He preached for their salvation. He preached for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of preaching against them, he preached for them. And here's the big question we need to ask ourselves. What are we for? Sometimes the church is well known for what it's against. And we should be against certain things. We need to stand for what's right or stand against what's wrong. I'm not questioning that. But the church should be known for what we are for. What are we for? We're for the gospel. We're for people's salvation. We could have been known for being against idols. That's the easy way out. That's the ineffective way out. God is for people, right? God is for the world. For God so loved the world, Jesus was sent to die for the world. So we need to be known as for, not just against. After preaching about Jesus and not relenting, he gets the opportunity to speak for the widest and to the widest audience possible on Mars Hill. Listen to how Paul begins with where they were and starts to point them to where he knows they want to be. Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. So again, Paul cringing about the idols. Instead of preaching against the idols, he starts with a common ground. A ground he didn't agree with, the idols, but he read through that and he saw something behind that. Paul isn't saying to them, well, you're close to figuring this out on your own. Good job. But he uses this extra altar to reveal to them how far they are to getting this figured out on their own and how they need somebody to help them. When he refers to this idol to the unknown God, this is what he's saying. This unknown God reveals the innate connection to and desire for a relationship with the one true God that everybody has. But it also suggests that we have an inability to get to him on our own. That's the battle, right? We want to know God, yet we can't get there on our own. Sometimes people point out and point this and point to Romans 1 as proof that people should be able to just come to the knowledge of God on their own. That's not the message here. Over in Romans 1, the, the message is that the nature, nature reveals to people that there is a God, yet our sinful nature blocks us from him, which is why we are condemned in sin. That's not a case for natural theology, but a case for our depravity and proof of our guilt. Sin has taken what God made an easy way to him and crumbled that and took humanity with it. This chapter in Romans 1 says we can't figure this out on our own. People that say, well, people over, you know, somebody, you know, they'll figure it out on their own because God will show it to them in nature. That's not the gospel. That's not the Great Commission either. Nature may reveal God to us, but our sinful nature keeps us from getting to him on our own. And that's what this scene at Athens is all about. It reveals our hearts know that there is a true God with whom we can make a real connection and to whom we are wholly accountable, but we are unable to do so alone. That's the whole theme of Mars Hill. It's a battle that we can't win. So what's the solution? 
Well, why is Paul at Mars Hill to begin with? Because the only solution is the church preaching the gospel. That's the purpose of Acts. That's the Great Commission, isn't it? Romans 10. How can How will they call on him who they not believed? How are they to believe in him who they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? The gospel isn't, well, they'll figure it out on their own. No, the gospel is that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So what does that tell the church? Unless we go out and proclaim the gospel, people aren't gonna get it. And they're just, they're not any less condemned. Mars Hill reveals what the shape of the world's in. They're searching for answers in all the wrong places. And they're very much accountable. But church, we are as accountable with the mission to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because faith will only come when it's heard and the only effective hearing comes by way of the gospel. The, real, the reason we cling to idols is because we have a hungry, empty, insatiable heart. Jesus is the only solution that will satisfy our souls. The world may not know that last part, but the world clings to idols. It clings to things of this world because we're all looking for something to give us peace and purpose. But there's only one solution. Listen to how Paul breaks this down. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with man's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwelling. So I love this, 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 these couple of verses because Paul to these, to these Athenians says, guys, I know I'm Jewish, but I'm not better than y'all. We're God is the God of all people. God created one race, the human race, And he is bringing us all back together under one savior. His name is Jesus. All these idols and all these different religions, that's man's way of trying to find an answer that will not be found out. But I've come to you with a universal solution. Verse 27, so that they will seek the Lord in hope that they might grope or feel for him, find him, though he's not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold, silver, or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly these things, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent or change because he appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has ordained. He has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. So listen how Paul breaks this down. Now, I think his sermon probably was a lot longer. Luke condenses it down to what is easy for us to kind of check, check out really quickly. Paul builds his case on the fact that we feel this connection and accountability, yet we are unable to overcome the gaps and shortcomings of our flesh. 
Yet listen to how he breaks apart their religion, our religion, how he makes a case for how illogical idol worship is. In verse 29, he says, we are all the offspring of God. We ought not therefore to think divine nature is in gold, silver, or stone, or something of this world that we made with our own hands. You can throw in their money, substance of this world, things that we cling to for peace and pleasure in this world. Why would we imagine that those things could give us the answer our heart needs? We are made in God's image. We are made in God's image, yet we often resort to worshiping and seeking refuge in the work of our own hands and our own imaginations. We ought to know that's not going to work. The fact that we all share this same desire, yet we go about trying to find peace in all different ways, reveals there is a shared solution that we all keep stumbling over. The message of Christianity is that God stepped into our world, in our shoes, in our flesh. The reason we can trust that Jesus is God's solution for our sin and the answer for our hearts is that Jesus was put under all that has broken us. He stepped into our place, was crushed by this world, yet he rose back to life, proving that he is greater than our sin and he's greater than death. That is the case for Christianity. We know there's a single God, yet we cannot get to him on our own. Religion tries all sorts of ways to get to him. We are burdened and broken by sin in our flesh. We turn to all the wrong things for relief. Yet Christianity tells us that God sent his son, put himself under our sin, under the wrath that we deserve, and he conquered the grave that sin puts us in, and he gives us spirit as true salvation. He gives us his spirit as true salvation. That is the gospel. This idea of resurrection was foreign to them, but it's intriguing to some. Verse 32 says, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the the Aragabite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And no doubt, Paul came back the next day, and the next day, and the next day, continually preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's response when they say, I don't know about this resurrection, Paul. Paul says, I, don't, I might not convince you, but I'll tell you this. I've seen him and he lives in me. His spirit is alive in me and can be alive in you. If we can agree with the premise of why we are all out on this hill, why we have all gathered around these idols, and we can agree that there is one God who created all of us in his image, can y'all at least just hear me out on the possibility that he sent his son to save us? And all this stuff is just a waste of time. That's where we in the whole world meet every day. I, I think Acts 17, 24 through 29 are some of those powerful verses in the whole Bible. Paul says we have one creator. No matter our color, no matter our nation that we're from, we have one creator who made us of one blood We are all made in his image and we all are trying to feel our way and find our way, yet Jesus Christ is the only path there is to take. Rather than us finding our own way, Jesus came and he is the way. I think most people agree with the the idea that there is a God who created them, but it's up to us to preach that Jesus is the only way to God. 
and live out our faith so that more people might come to find rest in him. There is a world out there that we can just get them to acknowledge, to acknowledge God, to acknowledge that they are struggling under their weaknesses and show them that by repenting, by changing their mind, by surrendering to God's plan, they can find salvation. I got to ask you, church, do we care for the world like Paul cared for his world? Are we relying on Jesus like Paul relied on Jesus? Are we preaching Jesus like Paul preached Jesus? These are questions we've got to consider if we're going to make the impact that Paul made. Every day in this world is a Mars Hill moment for us. Surrounded by people who are made in God's image, who are loved by God, yet they're captive to sin and they're desperate for relief. And they are in a battle within themselves, fighting this world tooth and nail. We who know Jesus must be passionate for the gospel and compassionate for sinners. So that they may come to know the Savior who loves them and the Savior who died for them. So are we living for the gospel and for the salvation of the world? There's a world out there that's hoping to find answers. They've even left an altar to the unknown God open just in case. We must tell them that it's not gonna be found out on our own. Jesus came and made a way for us. We must trust in him. He is our only hope. Us in our faith, we may look religious. We may look like we've got it figured out, but we didn't figure it out on our own, did we? We were, inter God intervened into our life and saved us from sin and saved us from death. God was for us, just like he is for the world. So we need to be for the world. We need to love the world like God loved the world. And we need to go to the world and show them that that unknown God, they're, they're keeping the door open for he has a name. His name is Jesus. And you know what's better than that? He knows their name. You know that? You ever got so aggravated at somebody that you thought, I can't, I don't understand why they're so out in the world. I don't, I don't get it. And you just think about it. You know, God knows their name and God loves them. You know, Jesus took their name to the cross. You know that? Jesus took name to the cross. He knows everybody's name. He died for everybody and had their name on his mind. Paul went to a group of people that had an altar to an unknown God. And he said, y'all, just wait. Let me tell you his name. And I love that we get a few of their names in verse 34. We're going to get to heaven. We're going to meet Dionysius and Damaris. And they're going to tell us, they're going to sing alongside us that it's better than an unknown God. His name is Jesus. So let's go to the world and let's be for them like Paul was for them, like God is for us and like God is for them. That's the only hope there is that we gotta go preach the good news of Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the good news. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for taking our names to the cross and dying for us. So Lord, help us to love people like you love people. Help us to take the gospel to the world like you took it to us, brought it to us. God, help us to go and preach for people, not just against people. 
Help us to go and be willing to put our lives on the line like Paul did. Help us to help to relate to people and to understand people and to help intercede for people and invest in people and, 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 and care for them and commit to them. God, help us to show the way like you've shown us the way. We're thankful for salvation. Help us to show more people the way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.